Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen and Dr. Skip Wren. Today's special guests we have are Dr. Nicole Quintero and Crystal Cizak from Key Autism Services. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, smash that like button on Facebook. Hope everyone had a nice COVID Thanksgiving and a happy holidays coming up, saying goodbye to 2020. Before we get to today's topic on Q&A on autism, just a couple little news bits that we'll, we'll put out there. Dr. Skip, you had a pretty cool article on a blood test for autism. Uh, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. There's measurement modalities that are, you know, definitely reaching the, the study stages, but it's around trying to get as early detection as possible for dementias in general, but Alzheimer's in particular seems to get a lot of the attention because it's currently like, hey, here we are. It looks like you got it. Good luck is you know, the general approach these days. And so the earlier the detection, the longer there are for interventions, which are also somewhat limited. But this particular article is about a blood test that allows for the detection of toxic proteins, amyloid and, and tau in particular, that are markers for the development of Alzheimer's. There's a couple other cool things that are out there too. There's one that looks at uh, your retina and, and optic measurement to be able to kind of look at how your eyes are doing, kind of, sort of in measuring the same things. But anyway, the point more is that there's these new technologies that are coming out to be able to give pretty good indication that, hey, this stuff's going on. Old way is autopsy. That's how they made yeah. the ultimate diagnosis of Alzheimer's was after it's all said and done. So definitely some headway here. It's pretty interesting stuff for sure. For a so you, you can crap get a diet test with 23andMe. You can get this blood test. Uh-huh. Dr. Laura, you can do a QEG or a brain map. What, what would show up as dysregulation uh, fibers? Front and the uh, sides. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep it simple. They, yeah, the <laughs> frontal lobe uh, can have issues and the temporal lobe, temporal. Uh, deep, deep memory tissues. Yeah, we have the technology to go into the uh, medial temporal lobe and, and look in and and see the dysregulation. So yeah, and again, it's not be all, be all end all of diagnosing Alzheimer's, but it can sure uh, dysregulation. What's well, the tool in the tool belt? No, yep. that's awesome. Correct. Yeah, it adds a piece of evidence. That's how I look at it. Okay, news bit. Uh, literally, Dr. Laura, you were on CBS News a couple weeks ago. What what was going on? <laughs> they came to interview us for uh, neuro noodles. So they're, they're asking about uh, teens uh, who are in sports who've experienced concussions. And they're asking about how our services could uh, assist diagnosing concussions and doing the um, pre, preseason um, baseline uh, images for kids who are in sports. Because pretty much all the kids or a majority of them have like this year off. So it'd be a good, pretty good baseline, right? They did a QE. Yeah, it'd be a great, and- great year to get the baselines. Yeah, kind of yeah, line them up and uh, let's see what the day-to-day functioning looks like. And then should they get hit, you know, experience concussion, then we can compare the results before and after and give people some very objective data on on what their brains are doing. Okay, now we're ready for our interview segment. And uh, we are lucky this week to have uh, Dr. Quintero and Crystal Cizak joining us from Key Autism Services. Thank you for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Dr. Quintero, could you give us a little background on yourself and Key Autism Services, please? Um, Yeah, I am a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, My background is in school psychology. Um, I'm also a 
board certified behavior analyst. And I joined uh, Key Autism Services three years ago. Recently in 2020, uh, Key Autism Services merged with Cornerstone Autism Services and Cornerstone Therapeutic Services, which I was employed through. Um, and so we work uh, local to Illinois and we have since expanded to several um, states across the Midwest and on the East Coast. The primary um, role of Key Autism Services provides is uh, applied behavioral analysis therapy in home and center-based. I joined in three years ago to create a diagnostic program. Um, and I assess not only children and young adults for autism, but any child with a developmental or learning or social emotional difference. Got it. Thank you, Dr. Crystal Cizek. Did I say that right, Crystal? Yeah, you did. All right. Practice makes perfect. T tell us about your role over at Key Autism Services. So I'm in charge of business development. I help facilitate opportunities like this to expand our diagnostic evaluations program, which of course Nicole leads. I also work in the community to partner up with local advocacy groups, non-for-profits, spread awareness, give back, give parent workshops, free resources. Um, virtual resources for parents are really huge right now, considering we're all kind of at home and limited in regards to community supports. So really thinking outside of the box in terms of how key autism services can give back to the community and partner with other facilities and organizations like yourselves so that we can be a good hub and referral source for patients that maybe aren't the best fit for us but still need additional supports out in the community. Well, you're doing a heck of a job. How many locations you guys got now? Holy cow. We have three, um, three physical locations, but we service eight states across the nation. Eight states. Wow. Wow. And that's keyautismservices.com, right? Yes, sir. KeyAutismServices.com. Okay, great. Uh, Crystal, maybe you can help me out. We got some listener questions specifically on autism. I figured we'd do a little Q&A. We have Dr. Laura and Dr. Ren on, our two neuropsychologists. Obviously, we have Dr. Quintero, and we figure, you know, we'll, we'll throw the question out there and let the doctors go go at it. And then if they, they go off on the deep end, we'll, 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 we'll cut them down. What do you say, Crystal? Sounds like a great plan. Okay, here, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first one on here, Crystal, and doctors. What is the difference between a neuropsychologist and a clinical psychologist? You can ra raise hands. Anybody can go first. Dr. Laura, I see two hands up in the air. <laughs> I'll take it. I was just stretching, but we'll take it. <clears throat> so humongous question, actually. I'll try to you know simplify a little bit. But so I both, um, so I went to school for uh, psychology Toral program, and I got licensed as a clinical psychologist. Most of my earlier work as a clinical psychologist involved doing psychotherapy and doing some personality testing. You know, you've heard of the Rorschachs and MMPIs. So there's there's objective and kinds of tests that we can give as psychologists to understand personality traits. So those kind of tests help other psychologists or other therapists, psychotherapists kind of understand, you know, the structure of personality. So, so basically those kinds of tests ask questions about depression, anxiety, interpersonal kinds of things. How do you get along with other people? Do you have anger, trouble? So I think when we talk about clinical psychology, that's probably the, the general psychology people think about someone going into a psychology office, telling them about their feelings, 
telling them about their relationships with other people and helping them kind of, I'll say, talk through those kinds of issues of, you know, again, anxiety, depression, talk things through. And, and there, there is some testing involved with that. But again, there, it's more personality based. So that is, was a large part of my earlier career. More recent in the last 10 years, I actually returned back to school to study neuropsychology. So we, we're adding the word neuro onto the psychology, right? So neuro has to do with brain functioning. In a lot of ways, it's different from clinical psychology. So the, when I think of clinical psychology, I, I think of subjective things. You know, people are talking, giving an opinion, um, giving theoretical ideas. But when we start talking about neuropsych, we're talking about uh, the, the buzzword there is brain behavior relationships. I can tell from an objective, relatively objective standpoint, what your brain is doing. Um, and we get after that information with other types of tests, and they're going to be called neuropsychological tests. And, and again, they're, we're, instead of looking at personality necessarily with the neuropsych testing, we're looking at brain functioning. So we have a, I have a hum, humongous cabinet in the other room there that is filled of probably, I don't know, 100 different tests. And what we get after with the neuropsych tests is so I have a battery of tests that I give out. So it involves uh, some IQ testing. It involves academic testing, attention testing. Uh, you know, many of my referrals are for ADHD, and people want to know, you know, why they can't focus, why they can't concentrate. And people are thinking, you know, if I have those problems, then I must have ADHD. Let, let's figure that out. But many times people will come in thinking or, you know, uh, asking the question about ADHD and they leave here with a different kind of diagnosis because there could be many other things going on besides ADHD. And that's what, you know, my role is to kind of tease that out, what else is going on. So, but attention testing and something called executive functioning testing, how, how do you plan? How do you think? How do you execute how do you develop responses? How does that take what you do know? And if we, or your ability, for example, IQ test, how do we execute the things you know or, or your abilities in real time? So that's executive functioning. I do learning and memory testing. So people with dementia or you know children with uh, academic disorders, um, we want to know what their memory, how, how do they think and organize information while they're trying to learn. And then I do, as a neuropsychologist, uh, do do some personality testing as well. So so the difference one is is more kind of psychotherapeutic. And again, I'm just making generalizations. Um, and then the other, the neuropsych is more uh, objectively, you know, tangibly about what is your brain doing? So again, I can tell what parts of your brain are doing what based on how you perform on my objective neuropsych test. For example, if we're testing your memory, if I have a dementia case, I know what part of the brain I'm pointing to my temporal lobe. I know what part of the brain could be having a dysfunction by how you perform on my Hold memory on. test. I, you know, uh, we can take those results, compare it against other Dr. People. Laura, just go, to, go back 10 seconds. Just yeah, uh, where did I leave off? You were pointing at your temporal lobe. Okay. <laughs> okay, so what I was getting, yeah. So what I was saying is I could tell what your temporal lobe is doing, uh, which is a part of the side of your brain. I can tell what that part of the brain is doing based on how you perform on my memory test. So I give you a bunch of words to remember, things to remember, and then, you know, different time intervals, you know, we get you a score on how many did you get. We compare those results against other people your age. I can tell what part of your brain is, is performing. I work very closely with a neurologist who um, um, can help us understand a little bit more about brain functioning, but we have all sorts of uh, equipment and, and uh, abilities to take pictures of, of, of brains 
in the functioning, the connections. And so we have to know a lot about neuroanatomy of a brain in order to you know, give people advice on, on what do you do after your neuropsych testing. Dr. Skip, Dr. Quintero, what do you think well, that? I, I, the only thing I would really add, and Laura covered it, is, and, and this is my impression, of course, Dr. Kintersh, can tell us what you do too, but neuropsych, neuropsychologists do neuropsychological evaluations, and it's pretty specialized in that regard, whereas clinical psychologists, I feel, have a little more leeway, and they don't have to do assessment. They don't have to do psychological assessments. They can do ABA work. They can do you know, clinical therapy. They can do psychotherapy. The options are a little more flexible, I think, and certainly now with advancement of psychology in business, there's positions within businesses now that involve maximizing performance and psychologists are in a great position to fill those positions. Again, just to kind of generalize, but clinical psychologists get to do a heck of a lot more, in my opinion, than neuropsychologists, which I'm not complaining because I like doing it, but neuropsychologists, again, do neuropsychological evaluations. And so it's pretty focused. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I say uh, traditionally when we think of a clinical psychologist, we think of like the emotions and behaviors and associated therapies. But again, it's all contingent upon the training program you were at. You did your pre and postdoc. And I, I fell into the diagnostic role because I always liked doing assessment, being in school psychology. I mean, we did so much testing. I wanted to learn more about, and I always worked with children on the spectrum. And so I chose a training programs pre and postdoc that specifically focused on autism diagnostics primarily. And then I was, you know, supervised by a neuropsychologist. And so I had this like pretty robust training and I love doing testing. That's my, you know, bread and butter. I do a little bit of therapy here and there, um, but I also know my scope of practice. And so I know, you know, when I say this is not an appropriate referral for me, and I will refer to a neuropsychologist for these more complex brain-based cases. Working in the pediatric population, I'm not running into dementia, uh, you know, or anything like that. But if it is a child with uh, TBI or, you know, uh, brain bleed, history of brain bleeds, I will refer out. Got it. Now, a majority of our listeners are, are moms. How does a first-time mom know that there could be a problem with one of their childs? They're quote-unquote on the spectrum, could could have issues. Anybody want to take, hey, wh- wow, something's up here. I better call Key Autism Services or I better call Dr. Laura, Dr. Wren. Right, right. I think like the front line is the pediatrician. Um, you know, they're going to their well-child visits and it's up to us as professionals to really educate the pediatricians on the developmental milestones and like, because there's a difference between delayed development and quote unquote atypical development, right? And so like, you know, act or the CDC Act Early Initiative is a wonderful tool to like disseminate information to pediatricians. Because I often have parents that come up, that have come to me and said like, I brought my concerns up to my pediatrician and they said, oh no, he's a boy, boys start talking later, don't worry about it. And so they prolong seeking out intervention. But I think, you know, I'm a mom too, I have two young kids. One's in school, one's in daycare. Um, And, you know, there's a thing called mama intuition for a reason. If a parent feels that something is different about their child's development, they should seek out going outside their pediatrician. You know, there's early intervention, talking to a a psychologist, talking to someone, you know, their daycare provider who they could talk to. It's not just the pediatrician should be their main to go to. So is talking, I mean, like, when should a child speak? I I mean, sorry, I'm really dumbing it down. But I mean, it's, when should a mom be worried? It's like, they're nine months old, 12, you know, Right. So there's this range, right, with developmental milestones. So, you know, they say delayed first words is usually after 18 months. 
So, you know, I have an almost two-year-old. My daughter didn't start talking until like 14, 15 months. Um, she's just now saying mom, but she's been saying dinosaur for months and months and months. You know, so like, again, but then my son was speaking in phrases by 12 months. So there is this range. And so, but yeah, first words by 18 months. Got it, got it. Doreen, sorry to cut you off. What do you, what do you got? No, it's okay. Um, I just had some questions for Dr. Quinteros. I agree getting information to pediatricians is a great way to go. How that actually happens is pretty interesting, I think. Right. Just given the dynamics between professionals and et cetera. But what's your experience? Again, I, I live in a completely different area than you guys, but what's your experience with schools being informed and then also being able to, I don't want to say educate, but at least have the conversation with parents because pediatricians don't always catch things or they maybe explain them away or other things, right? Um, what are your backups for pediatricians, right? Do, do you um, have any communication with schools or daycares or anything like that? Um, Crystal, do you want to you're kind of the go-to. Yeah. That. So in my experience, because I do the business development aspect of key autism services, and right now we actually launched a school initiative to advocate and, you know, spread awareness and those key signs to teachers. The problem there lies is church and state, the separation, right? If a school is seeing something that they're concerned about or they're worried about and they make a recommendation it's kind of the district's responsibility to ensure that they gain access to those supports. So there's this, hey, they have autism spectrum disorder, but they're really not learning as quickly as they should be, or you know, their, their rate of learning is, is a longer rate. It takes a little bit longer. Their skill acquisition, we like to call it, in ABA, it's just a different differentiation between kids, right? And every kid is so different. The difference is, is there are outside therapies out there that can enhance the learning that happens inside of a classroom. The taboo system that happens here often is that the teacher knows these kids best, right? They spend six, eight hours with them all day. And I know me as a parent, I don't spend that much time with my kid unless it's the weekend. <laughs> so they know these kids, they do, they see them, they see them learning. And they can pick up on things, right, in their experience. But they're oftentimes reluctant to really create a referral source, to create a network. So by doing like these free in-services or doing something where you partner with the district to just spread awareness on the outside therapies out there, again, then you kind of plant the seed. But it is hard for a, for a teacher in that position to say, you know what, have you ever looked at ABA? Because once that happens, there's this, this legal component that should the school then be providing. Okay, I understand. I can understand yeah. that. Without jumping in and, you know, taking over from you, Pete, or anything, but I know I'm interested in what ABA actually is and looks like. I know we're kind of talking around autism, but it, it's not just for folks diagnosed with autism, right? So can you guys talk a little bit about what ABA is and, and what it does? I know I make the referrals a lot from my end. Yeah, so I think that ABA, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, and it, it, within you know the field of behavioral health, it is a kind of a split on advocates and people who are against it. But it's, yeah, again, it's basically teaching socially meaningful behaviors using the principles of reinforcement. And, and so what that might look like varies on the age of the child. So it should not, a two-year-old should not be at a table doing things repetitively. It should be, they should be on the floor playing with the therapist and the therapist is modeling and playing with the child and 
reinforcing tiny little gains. So if a child all of a sudden is pushing a car, the therapist models a room and the child mimics it, you know, we throw a party right? because we want to make sure, you know, that ch the child's getting that reinforcement. So the child knows, oh, this is a good thing to do. I should keep doing it. You know, and so we teach skills in these tiny, tiny incremental steps. You know, it covers every area of development from language to gross motor to literacy, you know, adaptive life skills, um, as well as um, helping reduce challenging behaviors at home and at school. I mean, this could go, I could go on and on about ABA, but again, it's, it's been shown to be the most evidence-based intervention with individuals with autism. The research, though, has, I've read an article about improving a softball team's performance using ABA strategies. And so again, it really can be used in any aspect of life. Because of the intensity of service, it's not like, you know, psychotherapy where we're going in one, one hour a week or one hour every other week. It really is more intensive. So it can be anywhere from 10 to 25, 30 hours a week, depending on the needs of the child or adult. And because of that, it's an expensive therapy. So insurance, at least in the state of Illinois, insurance only authorizes ABA for individuals who have a diagnosis of autism, which is incredibly unfair for families uh, that, are, that are struggling. And it's in, right now in Illinois, Medicaid isn't covering it either. Waivers uh, families can get that can help um, services, but in general, families who are in poverty or have a medical card whose children have autism, they're not able to access these services that are so valuable. Uh, and to chime in on Dr. Quintero's point here is, yes, does it work with kiddos with ODD and Down syndrome? It does. It's just insurance is not going to pay for the services unless they have that F84.0 diagnosis. Okay comes back to coding, right? But I have had private pay patients in the past. Um, we've moved away from it because obviously it's supposed to be an intensive intervention. Like, you know, Dr. Quintero said, it's not meant to be an hour, two hours or three hours a week. So we've moved away from it, but I have seen amazing gains with kids with ADHD, um, with kiddos with Down syndrome, working through those, you know, types of behaviors where there's compliance and, you know, hey, let's do something fun and increase the likelihood that you're going to listen to me by giving you a high five or saying, um, let's jump up and down on the trampoline, right? Those are all demands but they're high probability demands, right? They like giving high fives. They like jumping on the trampoline and then kind of systematically increasing that, that response, right? Making it a little bit harder. Okay, come here. No, no kid likes to come here. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? We're at the park where we're on the slides, we're on the swing, come here. That's hard because the swing is so fun and the slide is so awesome. Um, I don't know that I want to listen to the demand. So really, like Nicole said, you know, the reinforcement contingencies it works across the board. I actually do ABA with my husband, kind of a joke. <laughs> you know, just, you know, he was throwing his clothes in the laundry basket right by it, but not in it. I just did my own laundry. I didn't do his. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, it wasn't in the basket. And it, <laughs> let me jump in here. Was you. Um, yeah, go ahead, Dr. I mean, there's a little, yeah, there's right. a little segue here into neurofeedback. Um, they're talking about their uh, crystal Nicole is uh, reward based learning and those are definitely you know psych 101 principles and we've been talking about reward based learning um, on this podcast for those people who um, do not know what neurofeedback is it is behavior management so and that's a service that we provide and we 
have, uh, and just go into reward-based learning with neurofeedback, a side note that we have the technology in our office to access a part of the brain uh, called the cerebellum. This is way new technology, I say, within the last year or so. Uh, prior to that, we were not able to access cere- cerebellums in the back of the head. And, and again, we don't have to do another neuroscience class here, but cerebellum brain uh, is implicated in uh, autism spectrum disorders and we can train the cerebellum to perform, to function better. And the way we do that is reward-based learning, much like Crystal and Nicole do in, in their offices uh, with their patients. They, they, and I'm simplifying it, so I apologize, but they reward the children um, for successive approximations toward the goal. That's from a textbook. But every time the, the child does what they want it to do, at least a bit of it, they'll get a reward and they'll you know, keep rewarding along the way. And that's exactly what neurofeedback is. We put sensors on a, a child's scalp and we have uh, specific sensors pointed at the cerebellum, which again is is a part of the brain implicated in autism. And when the cerebellum is functioning well, we reward them. And the reward, instead of hand clapping, which could very well be hand clapping, I guess, or positive other you know rewards otherwise, you know, maybe food food rewards or or you know uh, toys or something. What neurofeedback it does, it rewards people with sensory information. So they can uh, be watching a movie and the movie works properly when their cere- cerebellum's acting properly, uh, or they might hear a, a pleasant tone when their brain's uh, performing well, or some other feedback to the individual that their brain's doing the right thing. And we can actually train kids with autism to improve their brain functioning by sitting in our chair, you know, essentially watching movies or playing video games with their brainwaves. That's fascinating. What, what does that look like functionally then? Your Do they get better? Yeah. So I've had, yeah, sure. I've had kids uh, and I have one now actually uh, nonverbal. They, they come in, they, they're not speaking, they're not giving any eye contact. Uh, we, we coach them into, you know, being able to sit in the chair and that can take a long time. Uh, just rewarding them, you know, probably much like you guys reward them, reward them for sitting still, reward them for putting a nylon cap on their head, little sensors on their heads. So that might take a process to get them to, to be still. But eventually, after they get their trainings, then, you know, I've had kids, you know, who start speaking, you know, in, in you know, two and three word sentences for the first time. I, I was kind of blown out of my chair the other day. Uh, I had one of uh, a little girl, how old was she, 10 or 11, who never gave me eye contact, never said anything to me, would sooner, you know, I, I fall off the planet. But she, uh, the other day, came into the doorway of my office, which she, you know, never wanders around, came in the doorway of my office, looked me in the eye and say, hi, Dr. Janssen's. I'm like, who are you? And where did you come, you know, take the mask off. I want to make sure you're still you. Um, so, yeah, so what does it look like in real life? There's, there's, there's symptoms. We have, we have kids who talk and give eye contact and uh, different uh, patients have different levels of functioning, as you all know. Um, so yeah, we're expecting uh, interpersonal relationships to improve, reduce of the uh, stereotypical behavior, the the repetitive behaviors, as you guys are talking about. So we're expecting those things to improve. And yeah, we're, we're seeing people get better. You know, it's not a magic pill. I don't mean to you know say it that way, but it's another avenue using reward-based learning to improve people's functioning. So we certainly see many autism cases. We see many ADHD cases. We have people who have poor handwriting. We have people with other academic, they can't read. And so they come in to get neurofeedback. And what we're trying to do is train those brain areas to function better. And it assists, I mean, it's not the only thing, but it assists in developing those brain regions. So again, physically, we're getting 
getting after brain functioning and we can move their development along. And again, without promises, but if we're exercising those areas, getting you know uh, blood pumping, so to speak, in those areas, they have half a chance to kind of catch catch on to their own you know pace that they were you know, trying to develop into anyway, and there's kind of assist their development, you know, the the trajectory that that they're on to begin with. So the kids have symptoms, the moms, dads bring the kids in. How do you confirm the diagnosis, uh, Dr. Laura, with a QEG or a brain map? Obviously you do it, but what does it it look like? We can put a picture up on the site later. Yeah, sure. There's, uh, you know, again, cerebellum, psych one, or not, well, neuroscience 101. Cerebellum is in the back of the brain. It's, again, implicated in uh, folks who have dysregulation in the rate, rhythm, and force of what they do, rate, rhythm, and force of what they think, what they feel, and it puts a, a child or an adult to puts uh, someone's routine behaviors in sync with what's going on in their environment. It, you know, it regulates behavior for sure, but also regulates emotion. We have a lot of kids who come in emotionally dysregulated and they get one of those DSM diagnosis of, you know, emotional dysregulation disorder. But what it means is, yeah, their cerebellum's not functioning properly and they're having these, quote, meltdowns or they're having sensory uh, overstimulation. Uh, yeah, their, their cerebellum's over doing its proper thing. It's overreacting to, to sensory information. And so it, what does it look like on a picture? It looks like the back of the brain uh, is dysregulated by however many standard deviations away from average. And so we look at that. And you know, just to be clear, we're not only diagnosing based on brain pictures, although certainly valuable information, but we're also you know doing other kinds of neuropsych testing. You know, look at their development in terms of their motor skills, their verbal skills, and yeah, for children who come in for those diagnoses, those are the kind of uh, tests we give. And there's also social development tests that we uh, administer. So more of the traditional hands-on testing, you know, we do that with the neuropsych, but then the neuroimaging we have kind of supplements the traditional pen and paper, so to speak, tests that we have. So yes, we can look at graph and see, um, can be likely uh, autism spectrum, but we also uh, back it up with um, other tests. So to me, the more evidence we have of things, the better. We, we like to subjective evidence. We like to give out checklists. That's interesting information. What, you know, mom and dad, think or the teacher think it's, it's, it's important information. You know, I, I guess where my pendulum has, you know, swung these days is, is let's get the objective data. Let's, let's take a picture. You know, I can, in, in one picture, it takes less than a half an hour. Hopefully I can get so much information, you know, in that half hour than what it takes. You know, sometimes it could take four to six hours of neuropsych testing to, you know, look at absolutely everything, but a, a scan half hour. So, uh, you put both of those pieces together, the subjective evidence, you know, from checklists and things like that, uh, add them up. And then, you know, we have, um, we feel the strongest about, you know, the diagnosis that we're making. So the parents will get a report. It'll be a graphic image. Red means dysregulated or three standard deviations away. Green, green is good. Green is quote unquote, whatever normal is, right? Mm-hmm. But basically it's an objective representation of what's what's going on with the brain to help. Cause that'll take 20, 30 minutes. And when you guys do the regular diagnostics that can take six hours. How long does that take? Yes. It can, yeah. My, mine typically take five, six hours. Yeah. Same, yeah. Same with you, Quintero. Dr. Carroll. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us about your assessment tools? Cause that was one of the parent question, uh, questions. What type yeah. of it's probably very similar to, to theirs minus the, um, the brain mapping. Um, so yeah, parents, very structured parent interview, thorough developmental history, collateral information. So teacher daycare reports, 
uh, self-report if the individual is old enough. So again, getting a lot, I always tell parents, like, I'm just going to get this really robust data set. Direct testing at a minimum will be intelligence testing, language testing, and then specific autism measures. There's no one end all be all uh, test for autism. It's really a, the information that we glean from multiple sources. Um, but I will do something that's called the ADOS, um, which is historically been quote, the gold standard for autism testing, but there are other tests that are coming out now too for autism that other providers find useful. And so yes, I get this really robust data set if the individual's older, I might do social language testing, executive functioning testing, attention, see if there's any comorbidities or other diagnoses that might be appropriate. And so yeah, I get this really rich data set of a child's profile of strengths and areas of need, and then that shapes my diagnosis and recommendations. I'm I tell parents at the end of the day, like diagnosis or no diagnosis, my, my goal as a psychologist is to set them up for success by providing appropriate recommendations based on the data set I get. Got it. I'm looking at the questions here and the most obvious one, I'm going to have to guess, edit this out in post, is what is autism? Does everybody have the same definition? I mean, if I ask three psychologists, what, what is it? Is a neuropsychologist going to tell me something different from a clinical psychologist? What I is want it? Skip to take this one. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Skip, what is autism? Well, it's a fantastic question. There is definitive diagnosis within the DSM that will give you observable functional behaviors that you can then either say are appropriate for this individual or they fit for this individual that will allow them to fall along the spectrum and within the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, you can have varying degrees. And so, again, you can place someone on the spectrum in intensity of symptoms. And some of the symptoms that are mentioned already are some repetitive behaviors. So folks can do things like rock back and forth. They can do hand wavings. They can do just about, unfortunately, the sky's the limit on things you can think of, but repetitive behaviors with extreme cases, folks can have an object that they're continually engaged in and bounce a ball off a wall, for example. Again, some of the more extreme maybe examples would lend towards that. There's language deficits um, in both development and expression. One of the key ingredients, no pun intended or no you know, disrespect intended, but one of the key aspects is a difficulty in reciprocating interact interactions. Laura mentioned earlier um, somebody she was working with that didn't maintain eye contact. And so that's a, a visible or discernible symptom is that folks just don't seem to be connecting with other folks to try to put it in real language. Those are some of the um, you know observable symptoms. Certainly everybody else can jump in too. Before I you know, give up the mic, where I always come back to again, and I think it's the neuropsych end of things, and for folks who don't know, Laura and I trained under the same mentor. And it is this idea of cerebellar function or dysfunction. When the cerebellum isn't working like it's supposed to, and it's not regulating things like it's supposed to, then you get this dysregulation. One of the words that I think everybody's aware of that works in this area is meltdowns. Parents will often describe meltdowns and their kids have the quote unquote meltdowns. What it practically means is that there's an inappropriate, no judgment, but inappropriate response to external stimuli that again, just isn't appropriate for setting. So you break your shoelace and it's interpreted that my world just ended. And so you have a corresponding then dysregulated emotional response to that cognition 
oh no, my shoelace broke. I don't know how this is going to end up. Then again, you have the cognition around that. This is a terrible thing. The emotional response could be some kind of meltdown. And then behaviorally, you're losing your mind, running around the room, banging walls and doing all kinds of things. It's a progressive dysregulation because it comes back to the same neuroanatomy, the cerebellum, that's not doing its job. One other thing I always try to explain to parents too, just to put it in perspective, because we're trying to understand people, right? The cerebellum also, if you want to think about it another way, it's it's a librarian. And so it doesn't do all these things that we ask it to regulate. It accesses experience so that we do them more accurately. So for example, if somebody's having a difficult time accessing appropriate experiences, back to the shoelace thing, my shoelace broke last week and my life didn't end, that would be an appropriate reference to experience. Hey, shoelace breaks, it happens. You know what I mean? And life goes on. Without that efficient access to experience, other things fill in as conclusions or interpretations. Meaning, if you can't get the, the experience that, hey, everything's going to be okay, this dysregulation will help air quotes, right? It's not helpful, but it'll, it'll fill in experience, but the experiences are dysregulated. So right. now my shoelace broke's a big freaking deal and it's going to be bad. And then again, mm-hmm. it plays itself out through the dysregulation of cognitions, emotions, and then behaviors. So right. long answer to what the heck's autism. It's just, I wanted to so, make sure. So skip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So skip. Yeah. We both train together under the same mentor. So maybe that's kind of a differentiation. And we talk about what's the difference between clinical psych and neuropsych. We went back to school after our doctorates in uh, psychology trained for a couple of years, um, uh, specifically in, in neuropsychology, neuroanatomy and things like that. I got the board certification actually in, in neuropsychology. We both took a brain dissection class, et cetera. But let me ask Skip, that's why I want you to answer, answer the question. How many times did you hear the word autism in our neuropsychology training? I only heard it when Len, uh, that's our mentor, said that he has it. So <laughs> the only time that it was really discussed, and I know what we're <laughs> after here, is when Len, Len would say, yeah, I got all the traits and uh, I'm self-diagnosed aut- autistic and 10 other things, but anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> I think what Laura's getting after or pulling for right. is- Right, so the point of the question- Brain function versus something that's yeah. called something. Right, right. So yeah, so that's kind of making a small point, but it's interesting that when we were trained, yeah, we, we just want to know what the brain's doing, the labels and the flags we put on the brain, you know, the, the traditional way of diagnosing people is put a label on it and that's necessary to communicate, but, you know, what we're, you know, kind of going after as neuropsychs is, yeah, what is the brain doing and what, what can we do about it? Like, how can we improve things? And, you know, you do need a diagnosis, like you said, for ABA training, we should have, you know, the, the letters and the codes, et cetera. But, you know, when you think beyond that, it's like, okay, the, the labels are, are labels, but the point is, what do you do about it? We have these interventions. And, you know, that's what I like about neurofeedback and neuroimaging. There, there's not flags on the brain that, that have diagnoses. Um, there are areas of dysregulation, and our, our goal is to, to make it better despite the diagnosis. You know, you can have a cerebellum dysfunction, but what if you have another area of the brain, you know, that, that's out of bounds, you know, dysregulated for whatever reason? That doesn't mean you don't have autism. And, you know, you just have, it's like a thumbprint. I keep saying that, that, you know, everyone's brain functioning is different. And so you can't, you know, throw everybody in the same bucket and say, this is uh, autism because there, there's so many variances in people's brain functioning that the diagnostic system is, you know, 
talk someone said dinosaurs the diagnostic system we have these days is is, is very outdated and we're going to have different systems coming in place hopefully soon Right. And I couldn't, you know, something that's really been interesting to me lately that I've been really kind of delving into is females who have autism spectrum or who are autistic, um, but they're very intelligent. So growing up, they've developed these like masking behaviors to like integrate themselves with their cohort, but then they, that's resulted in, you know, social anxiety and parents, you know, didn't really see the, the quote unquote traditional red flags. And so they're not getting diagnosed until they're in college or, you know, they're career women and they've always felt that something was different, but they didn't know how to articulate it. So I've been actually doing a lot more just reading and researching from autistic individuals and their like life stories. And just to get a better understanding, because we have this DSM, but we know that's like not the end all be all. We know that the, you know, the differences have to be shown in early childhood or their development has to be different, you know, within childhood, but how that presents in one person is not going to present the same way in another. So that's one area I've been really learning more about and want to see more and more research in is how it presents differently in females than males. Crystal, you have the uh, list of questions too. Is there any, any of the ones you want to hit before we start to wrap things up? Yeah, we did talk about quite a bit of them, but um, one that is always my favorite is, you know, can you share one story of a success story? Um, And I like to see all the doctors answer this because, right, why do you become a doctor? You become a doctor to help people. And there has to be at least one story in your experiences and in your years that really resonates with you and why you do what you do. Can each of you, like, Share one of your favorite success stories. Dr. Quintero. Well, this, try to think. Okay, so COVID has kind of really thrown (laughs) for a loop. Um, Pre-COVID, a middle school boy, just always been a little bit disorganized, um, but a good student, a little mildly anxious, but still very popular, played sports. Under middle school, when the demands increased, for autonomy increased, and really just kind of his grades started lighting, started becoming more withdrawn. So the family's like, all right, we need to figure out what's going on. Is this just anxiety? And if a family just has concerns about anxiety, I'm not going to recommend full-blown testing. You know, they can see a clinical psychologist in therapy to address that. But if there's more concerns, like is this learning or attention or anxiety, that's when I think it's appropriate to, to do an evaluation. So anyway, he came to me and he is motivated. He is very insightful. Um, he's wonderful to work with. Um, and I did end up diagnosing him with um, ADHD and anxiety. And I made a couple of referrals of providers who I thought would be a good fit for him. And the one he went to within just a couple sessions of skill, skill building. So this therapist was using teaching him executive functioning supports. Um, within just a few sessions, um, his grades improved. You know, the behavioral momentum was going. Like, he was so proud of himself. Feelings of self-worth improved just within a few sessions. So again, like, the te- I was so proud of him because, again, he was motivated. And at least we were able to give him an answer of, like, why he was feeling this way. It's not that school is overwhelming. It's just his brain works differently, and we need to teach him those supports. And he took therapy, and he ran with it, and he got discharged pretty quickly from therapy. So that's great. And the goal is always to fade out, right? Talking about ABA, you know, earlier, I think a common misconception is that it's forever, (laughs) right? My child's always going to have an autism diagnosis. They're not going to grow out of it. So am I going to need ABA forever? And the goal is to fade out, right? Get in, get them the supports they need, see them graduate the program. That's so exciting. So thanks for sharing that, Dr. Quintero. Um, Skip, do you have one? Do you have a success story that you love? Yeah, for sure. And 
there's specifics, right? So you met with this person and this happened and this person and, you know, their parents were grateful and called you back six months later. It, and in a you know long career, things are different. So when I was doing psychotherapy, you were able to gauge quote, success differently than maybe now I'm doing neuropsychs and certainly COVID makes things a little unique just by the nature of how we're working. But neuropsych evaluations are a little different in that it's kind of a one-stop uh, meeting and then you, you refer out to ABA and things like that. With that in mind, what has been relayed back to us by folks that come to see us, so it's not just one, but it's this experience that folks have had during the neuropsych evaluations because of the way that we have our office set up and we have a service dog that's there and the folks oh. that work in the clinic are just really empathic, sweet people. And we've gotten the feedback mostly from adults because kids don't like neuropsych testing and they want to get the heck out of there. <laughs> mostly adults that have long histories in the medical industry, machine, whatever you want to call it, of being depersonalized is that they leave our office and they're like, hey, like I felt like I was heard today. Thank you. And and that's enough to give back. You know, it's it's nice to get paid and pay the bills, but like that pays back tremendously when you have people that are and Laura can attest to this too. By the time folks get to us for a neuropsych, certainly adults, they've tried a lot of things. They've tried a lot. They're looking for, hey, why isn't my brain working right? And they're not getting those answers and they're frustrated and they're discouraged and all those things. Hopefully I'm providing more than just this, but their response is, hey, I felt heard today. And, and that's invaluable to me. And like I said, that gives back a lot. Hopefully they're getting more out of it too. That's the success. Like that's fantastic when people express that that's how they felt leaving your office. That's, that's, there's not much better than that. That is beautiful. And it's, it's across the board, you know, you're hearing it from multiple people. So you know that when somebody walks into your facility, they're going to feel that they're going to walk away with that. What about you, Dr. Jansen's? What's your favorite success yeah, story? Sure. I, I probably don't have one because you know, the obvious or so there's, there's, there's many, there's many success stories, I guess. But um, what, what I was referring to earlier, actually, is the most recent one, the little girl who, you know, never spoke, started speaking. It's like, wow, okay, this is a uh, made for TV movie or something. So, you know, those, those things are the wow moments and you feel good and you feel good for them and their family for sure. But I had a couple minutes to think while everyone else was answering. What I like as a neuropsychologist Again, this sub subjectivity versus objectivity, you know, prior to getting into neuropsych and, and being a clinical psych, you know, we were using this diagnostic manual that is very subjectively based. People come in after they've, you know, been on Google for a couple hours and they say, you know what, I think I have anxiety or I think I have depression or I think I have ADHD and they, they get their language you know, from society, because people, you know, people will say, oh, I can't focus, oh, I can't, you know, can't think. And so when they develop that language around what they believe they have, they go into a psychiatrist with that language, and they get essentially their medicine, because they have read it from the internet, which, you know, is basically a diagnostic, you know, they, they have all their, their uh, wordings from the diagnostic manuals, they get their pills. So they, they get their pills and, and that's fine. And they, you know, see, see their psychiatrist for years and years, but when they come to, you know, and if it's not working, those pills or they stopped working or whatever, they come to me and then we give them some objective testing. And I, it just happened yesterday. You know, someone's been treated for ADHD for a number of years. I gave them you know, actually some brief tests. And I'm like, uh, well, you might have some of those symptoms for sure. But hey, on my 
you know, the way I, I'm looking at this, this is anxiety or this, you know, that happens so often it, people treated for anxiety and, oh, it's ADHD or, you know, you look at a scan and, you know, you get, you know, this is more OCD or this is, you know, something else. And, you know, people run around for years, I'll say taking the quote wrong medicine or, or medicine that's not really, you know, people think that ADHD and when you get medicine, medicine will will affect all types of symptoms of ADHD and that's not true we can you know give objective tests and say hey you might have ADHD but you don't have the the symptom that works with the medicine so I've had right. plenty of people on ADHD meds not not treating the disinhibition uh, distractibility anyway so the, in terms of you know positive outcomes uh, it's when I tell a patient hey you know I understand you 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 believed you had that because that makes sense. But, you know, if we look, look at the data, you're being treated for the wrong things all these years. And, and that's kind of the aha moment for everybody. And it's great, you know, it turn, turn, turns the corner and gets them a, a new way of looking at things that, you know, get, gets them better. Well, it gets the answers, right? I think when we're in that bubble, we're already seeking help. So giving any kind of really formula direction, <laughs> you know, at that point is, is helpful. So, I, I know we're wrapping up and I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing your experiences and I hope that um, your guests and your listeners got to understand a little bit of the differentiation and a little bit more about autism spectrum disorder. We really enjoyed our time here today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Crystal. Crystal Cizek from Key Autism Services with Dr. Nicole Quintero. What's the best way to get a hold of you guys? Somebody's you know listening, you- mom, mom's listening to us. How do we get a hold of you? Our number is one number. So one number hatches you into our entire um, employee directory. So you could contact me directly, Dr. Quintero directly, but our number on our website, you call, you speak to the great intake department. We have some amazing ladies who answer the phone, bilingual services as well. So anybody who needs to know a little bit more, just pick up the phone and give us a call. And hopefully we can we can get you the help that you need in the services to start your family. And that's keyautismservices.com, right? Yes, sir. Okay, great. Thank you. Lady, ladies, thank you so much. That was that was awesome. That was thank awesome. You. Cool. Yeah, just a suggestion. We're changing this thing every week. Yeah. It okay. adds a level of thank you to Dr. Nicole Cantero and Crystal Cizak from Key Autism Services. Next week's special guest will be Dr. Mike Cohen. That'll be a good one, huh, Skip? Yeah, yeah. Mike's Mike's a fun guy to listen to for sure. Good peeps. Hashtag good peeps. Please like us on Apple Podcasts. Smash that five-star button, please. Great podcast, guys. Cue the music over and out. Riva Dirce. See you next week. All right.